You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Okay, without uh, any delay, I'd like to uh, introduce our esteemed panel. Um, on my immediate left is our own beloved Rabbi Emeritus, Rabbi Gary Creditor. <laughs> Next to him, our newly installed Rabbi Michael Knopf. Next to him, a very close friend of Rabbi Noah uh, for a very long period of time, Rabbi A. Friedman. And next to him is Rabbi Neil Rose, who is uh, Adira's father, um, and that's his most important role as far as we Meltdown that we all recognize. 
that will cause initially terrible and unprecedented disruption, and if we continue on in our current direction, it will completely destroy the natural world upon which our very own existence exists. On the best of times side, we, we are a part of um, we are part of the generation that has seen the return of our people to God's promised land. And that is unprecedented. A possibility that was unheard of and off the charts, even in the time of our grandparents. But we know the price that has been paid as well for this gift. And, and we continue to do so in the process of embracing modern statehood for our people. So we have significant challenges. One could say that in the world of wonders granted to us by God, hope is on the run and barely surviving. And we come to our teachers, we come to our rabbis for advice and for spiritual guidance in meeting these challenges in our age. And the great challenge of keeping hope alive, keeping our people active and vibrant, and envisioning, envisioning a future a positive future for our children and our grandchildren that will continue to burn the flame of Judaism and Jewish particularity and all the special things that Jews are um, and allow us to continue to represent God to the people of the world to be a light to the nations. So with that as an introduction, um, I'd like to ask, who wants to go first? <laughs> <laughs> Nope. Okay. <laughs> Gary uh, paints um, a good panorama of the world we live in. What do we as rabbis have to say to it? I'll say that firstly, that in the beginning time of my rabbinate, we didn't understand this panorama that Gary has laid out. Um, we had to learn what the world was as we stood on the beam and looked out at the world and tried to figure out what we should say from the pulpit to ourselves, to everyone before us, and what was our role in the world. One of the things that I've come to see over the um, 40 years since I stepped up with my pulpit for the first time as a student rabbi was the need to express the sense of hope that is embedded in Judaism. Okay. We sing in the Hatikva, Od Lo Avda, not yet has been lost, Tikva Tenu, our hope. And that's a more global statement than just a Zionist statement. It is embedded in the Vi'im, in the, in, the, in the prophets, and such is that when we come to the issues of the day, whether it is what we wreak upon the world ecologically, so we have a foundation on which to teach our who's before us, whether it's in the classroom or from the pulpit, whether it is on issues of guns and violence, of which uh, I've been particularly involved in that one, and particularly involved since our own loss and our own congregational family from it, whether it is for Israel, which is never un undangered, they say it lives in a terrible neighborhood, we, from the pulpit, or from the classroom, or from wherever we go, whether you accost me in the supermarket, um, which has happened now more frequently, um, <laughs> you know, I tell you, if I shaved with my beard, and, you, and my wife wouldn't recognize me, you still would. Um, <laughs> But, you know, we, we as rabbis are called to respond to everything which makes Judaism always relevant. And whether we're, we're citing a verse, whether because we are representatives of the Pharisaic, of the, of the rabbis of generations, then what we are saying from the pulpit, the classroom, and from the aisle is relevant to all the issues of the day. It's whether or not everyone wants to be engaged, that's part of the other thought of this topic, was engaged with us in this, in this dialogue of the issues and get motivated by it, that's the other side of the room, that's your side of the room. But I know that we have, I have come personally through the, the crucible of the rabbinate to learning what it is to be a rabbi, to know from, when, when, from the tragedy of Virginia Tech or other moments of tragedy or whether under the, the, the war from Gaza, the first one, the second one, is to, is to enunciate a hope and a, and a faith in God and in us, and in us, that we as Jews and Judaism will continue on the face of this earth. 
it's not only our job, as we see as a holy, a holy task, but it's also you know, your response and your task as well. We articulate it, we represent it, we lead it. That's what I tried to say when it says in the verse yesterday, it says in the singular and then in the plural. It's not just you and I, all of us, but it's the plural, all of us. Um, and that I always, at the end of the day, no matter how tragic things seem, no matter what issue I can put on my list, whether it's immigration, guns, violence, ecology, the peoplehood of Israel, at the end of the day, I rely, my faith, is on the words that the prophets, that those windows that we sit in and shul, that glow upon us, that each one of those prophets enunciated, a sense of hope and certainty, when they reflected God's words, that there was a certainty that we would return. And then that beautiful phrase captured in Hatikva, Odlo al Datikvatena. And I think that's uh, my response to the questions you put down. So it's hard to follow up that uh, that, that beautiful uh, introduction from uh, Rabbi Creditor, and and I first um, want to uh, just take a personal point to um, thank. Rabbis uh, Creditor Friedman and Rose for being here and uh, for uh, Gary for uh, moderating this discussion and for everybody to be here. When, 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 when I first came up with the topic or when we uh, collectively first came up with the topic, um, you know, it was sort of like, well, we should do a panel discussion on Sunday and okay, well, it's got to go to print in the bulletin like tomorrow, so what should it be about? <laughs> And, and so, so we just kind of like, you know, uh, uh, threw together uh, the, this idea and it, it, it kind of stuck. And, and immediately after I had that moment of like, oh, no, no one's going to want to come to that. And, um, and that's not very. But the more I thought about it, uh, the more um, uh, I think um, intriguing the, the topic is, because as Gary, I think, so astutely put it, you know, we're living in. Can you not hear me? Can you hear me better when I do this? Okay. It's a too close. Too close? Can you hear me when I do this? Here? Like this? Okay. I'll hold, try to hold it exactly right here. Um, it's hard because I like to talk with my hands. So, uh, so uh, you know, as, as, as Gary really astutely put it, I mean, we're living in um, a, a, a very radically different age than um, many of our ancestors could have ever envisioned. Uh, and there are some who have argued that uh, we are now entering into um, a, a new age and stage in Judaism altogether that is post-rabbinic. Um, so if, if you have, uh, uh, you have uh, the temple period, um, and then you have the rabbinic period, which began roughly around 70 CE after the temple was destroyed by the Romans, um, then in the wake of the Holocaust and the birth of the state of Israel, um, we're really entering into a new age of Judaism that is post-Rabbinic because uh, Rabbinic Judaism posited a theology in some ways that is really wiped out by the Holocaust um, and, uh, and was really designed for... Um, uh, more or less a diaspora Judaism, even though the early rabbis lived in the uh, in in the state of in the land of Israel, um, the the Judaism that they designed was uh, meant to be portable and was uh, meant to be uh, um, for, uh, for for Jews that were um, uh, beginning to be landless. And in an age where we've returned to our land and are re-engaging with, uh, with what it means to be a landed people, um, the, the question, I think, um, reasonably is posed whether the uh, approach of rabbinic Judaism as an idea um, is relevant at all anymore. And it's, I think, additionally complicated because within the land of Israel, within the state of Israel, um, the, the rabbinic role is very interesting and, some, and in some ways very problematic. Um, so on one level, many, many if not most Israelis feel that by virtue of their Israeliness, they don't really need Jewish religion anymore. And so in that sense, the rabbi is more or less irrelevant in Israel. 
Um, and, uh, and, and on the other side, the model of the rabbinate in Israel is uh, um, very old world authoritarian um, in ways that most uh, Jews that have been uh, uh, certainly educated in the West and experienced Western forms of Judaism, uh, but, uh, but even within Israel itself, um, uh, feels like an antiquated uh, uh, old world model of, uh, of, of uh, religious authority that no longer uh, works and in fact uh, has uh, hurt a great many people. Some people even in this room may uh, be able to attest to uh, um, the, the um, uh, pains um, associated with, uh, with uh, the, the Orthodox rabbinate in, in Israel. So we're really, I think, in, in this age where it's, uh, it's, it's questionable and, and the, the uh, seeming demographic decline of Judaism in America, where all these factors really lead to this, I think, open question about whether, whether the rabbi and the rabbinate is a relevant thing anymore. So I, I want to just propose... Um, an idea that my rabbi, uh, Sharon Brouse, uh, who's the rabbi of a synagogue in L.A., well, she would never call it a synagogue, but I'll call it a synagogue, in L.A. called Ikar. Um, so Ikar means um, uh, the essence. Um, and that's really one of the guiding principles of her rabbinate and of uh, the synagogue that she founded was to get back to the core of, uh, of, of Judaism and Jewish values in, in much the same way that Rabbi Creditor was talking about. And so on uh, Yom Kippur, she gave a sermon uh, that she called Fire on the Mountain. And uh, she introduced this metaphor that I think was not original to her, but it was a beautiful one. And I want to share with you that all religions are like volcanoes. And they start with a, with, with a, with a big ball of molten energy that explodes and erupts into the world. And over time, that, uh, that energy glides down the mountain, right, and, and cools and forms into hard rock. And so over time, you get, to see that the, that you get to see what the religion looks like because it's now the edifice of the mountain that's covered in this molten rock. But the core of the religion, what produced that molten rock, gets lost and hidden by what's external, and so we have for maybe uh, a millennium or more in Judaism um, had a, uh, a religion of, uh, of, of hard, cold rock. That's, those are the forms, the practices, the norms of Judaism uh, that, uh, that um, most of the institutional Jewish community, even in uh, liberal streams of Judaism, have uh, really... Um, spent a lot of time, you know, as uh, there's this uh, position within the church, uh, the previous pope, before he was pope, his title was like the, the defender of the faith or the protector of the, the, of, the, uh, of the doctrine of the faith or something like that. So um, and I bring that up because I think that uh, many rabbis and uh, the institutions that uh, they led or the communities over which they presided in the past um, have really been about preserving the, uh, the, the, the rock of Judaism. And in this new age, um, a, a new generation of Jews sees the rock but doesn't see the fire in the mountain. And so the role of the rabbi in this new age is to help people recover that original fire, that burning bush, um, that original revelation of Judaism. What's the core? What's the ikar? What's the essential and eternal message of, uh, of, of Judaism that is being preserved but sometimes obscured by the uh, forms and institutions and structures that have been built and existed previously? So it's a very different kind of uh, model, but what it offers is a, is a tremendous possibility because the Jewish community in America and around the world has been a tremendous force and a powerful force for good in the world. And we've built such amazing, vibrant, powerful institutions. And the question before the Jewish community today is, and therefore I think before rabbis today is, can we help the Jewish community in America and elsewhere muster our resources, our human resources, our capital, in order to uh, benefit and transform the entire world through the um, eternal and hopeful um, uh, and compassionate and just message of Judaism. Uh, with 
with great thanks to my very patient and supportive wife. Hi, honey. Um, I, I, I went to business school at night while I was in rabbinical school. Um, and people often ask me, what does a rabbi do with an MBA? Um, but one of the blessings is that it taught me to think in ways that rabbinical school doesn't often teach you to think, and, and particularly in terms of um, an approach to business that's called contrarian thinking, looking for what are the, what's, what's the small trend behind the big trend that doesn't look obvious. So we live in a time in which not only Jews but Americans in general are increasingly disaffected from religion. The fastest growing religious group in America, according to Pew, are people of no religion. Nuns. I know, but when you say nuns, people see the black and white. <laughs> yeah, <hat>. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lahav deal. <laughs> right. So, so we see, we live in a time in which Jews are no different than anybody else. People are turning away from religious observance, away from religious affiliation, away from religious community. And within that, there's a smaller group of people who are desperately seeking the meaning that religion has to offer. Um, I was telling Rabbi Rose earlier, we run a, we run a conversion program, um, and in the five years that I've been in Chicago, we've done about 30 conversions a year, which is a staggering number, and, and fewer than half of the students are in relationships with Jews. So these are, these are unpartnered individuals who are looking for meaning, uh, who have come. There's a guy in the program now who's in a Jesuit seminary for a couple years, and that didn't work for him. Um, you know, and, but people are coming to us after a decade or more of trying different religious faiths of seeking and who have found that it's Judaism that speaks to them. Um, we have Jews who have been away from the synagogue for 10, 20, 30 years who are coming back, who are seeking meaning. Um, and I think part of the question, I would say part of the question that the 21st century rabbi needs to face is, how do we reorient ourselves? How do we recognize that we may not have mass appeal in this generation or the next generation, but we have the opportunity to energize a generation of seekers who want to hear the answers that the last 2,000 years of our tradition have developed. And I talk about this sometimes. People ask us, why? Why do we go back to the commentaries on the Torah? Why do we have this Sidur whose prayers have remained unchanged for 1,000 years? Um, and we, we have a lot of doctors in the congregation. It's one of the longest-running clinical trials in the world. <laughs> no, and I, and I, it's a great time. And I mean that seriously. The prayers in the Sidur have offered meaning to millions of Jews for thousands of years. And I would be very reticent about fiddling with that. You know, you adjust certain things, right? I don't thank God for not making me a woman. But, but by and large, you look at the Sidur, and I say, these are things that have worked for hundreds of generations. I'm inclined to believe they can continue to work for another hundred generations. I think you can understand why I feel so confident about the future. Can you hear me? Um, I, I really have been very impressed by all the things that I've heard, all the more importantly the things I've seen. Um, I was going to say, I know a lot about rabbis because my wife has several, has three sons and a son-in-law. I say, I know a lot about rabbis. Yeah? Because my wife has three of them as sons, and her daughter is married to one. You're supposed to laugh. <laughs> Thank <you>. Or cry. <laughs> I'm very proud of my son. Uh, I, I have the advantage of... Uh, I, I never like to go first because, you know, uh, I like to go last because I, I want to put real signs after everything that was said here. I, I have, really. Um, and in the couple of minutes I have, let me start out with a little bit of hubris. Uh, let me tell you who I am. Um, when we were packing to move from Winnipeg to St. Louis, you know, when you downsize, you, it's really a problem. <laughs> All right, let me, you know that. Uh, we have artwork and pictures, and the one picture that the one picture that I knew that I would not give up is the picture of my great grandfather 
after whom I am named. My great-grandfather, still hearing? My great-grandfather was a Cantonist. The, in, if you, a Cantonist was a young Jewish boy in, in the sphere of Russia about a hundred some years ago who as a child was taken into the Russian army. It was one of the Tsar's many strategies to get rid of Jews. And my great-grandfather at age 30, I assume he got an honorable discharge, and he came back and married his niece, uh, and uh, who then fathered my grandparents. Um, and so here I am. If my great-grandfather had gone someplace else, I'd probably be an Orthodox priest today. <laughs> but I, I tell you the story because um, I, I, I never, I, have, I really don't worry about survival, okay? Uh, I worry about the quality of Jewish life. Uh, that's very important to me. On the other hand, uh, as much as I honor my great-grandfather and in some modest way think that I, I and my children uh, are his reward for returning, um, uh, my grand if my great-grandfather would have come back today, right, uh, and watch his great-grandson uh, play out the role of being a Jew, let alone a rabbi, I don't think he, I'm not sure he recognized that this is Judaism. Uh, and that, because we, I, I, we are, in that sense, conservative, lowercase. We, as uh, Rabbi Friedman said, we look both to the, the past and the future for wisdom. Now, so what does this mean for a rabbi? Uh, I think that a rabbi which is the initial question, has to have the ability to do both of those things. Not all rabbis are the same, uh, and uh, they, uh, rabbis are trained differently, they're different by disposition, okay? Uh, and I think that uh, the younger generation of rabbis in the younger rabbinical schools, which includes uh, my son, who's a co-founder of a non-denominational political school in Boston, um, I think, again, they will do wonderful things, and they have done wonderful things. Um, and uh, you, are, you are, as a community, are, are I think, very blessed uh, by these uh, young rabbis and their spouses. The last thing I want to say, and I wanted to say it yesterday, but I ran out of time. Dira was keeping track of me. <laughs> She's good at that. Yeah, you know that. <laughs> One of the big differences between the current uh, generation of rabbis and previous generation of rabbis is the realization that a rabbi cannot work 60 hours a week and do justice to his family. Um... Uh, I was never a congregational rabbi. I'm a university professor and a family therapist. Uh, I never had the, what it took to be a congregational rabbi. Um, but I, I do know that this generation of rabbis, because of the fact that they have seen the fire, uh, they want to pass that fire on to their children. And they need to be at home to do that. Uh, and you need to let them be at home, <laughs> right? To in order that they can pass uh, and their enthusiasm and their fire onto their own children. Um, the people in this room and the folks who you know uh, have ultimate say in the congregation need to realize that a rabbi is a partner. The rabbi is a parent. The rabbi is a spiritual being who, who needs to cultivate the rab that rabbi's inner life. So, as I said yesterday, the symbol of, la of, la of this Shabbat uh, Torah reading, the Kriya, 
was the symbol of the rainbow, the making of the covenant. And I introduced a concept last yesterday, for those of you who weren't there, that the rainbow is a, a two-way street. And yesterday you entered into a contract, a covenant, with your rabbi. Uh, and he, need, he and his family need to be cared for, not only respected, but he needs to be cared for. The last thing I want to say is that, um, this is totally unconnected, the, co the complexion of our community is changing. I know all you Ashkenazim talk about, you know, uh, the different colors of people, of us Jews, but not since the uh, 3,000 years ago uh, have we looked so different among ourselves. And that's a very important thing that we all need to realize. The next generation of Jewish children will be a rainbow. And I think that's a very wonderful thing. So it's 11.04, and we're going to have to, I guess, draw this to an end at 11.30. Um, Maybe a little too early to open it up to the floor, but I'd like to just follow up with one question that kind of, I think, emerges um, from some of the comments that were made. And that is, how do we operationalize our essence? How do we make this happen in a pragmatic, on-the-ground way as partners? Partners with our clergy, partners with our lay congregants, partners with each other? How do we make this a team that operationalizes our essence? Is that a, is that a reasonable question? That sounds like an MBA question. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like the two of you question. Go to it, Frank. The hint, one hint, is music. Okay? No, no, I'm not gonna. I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna take the bait. I'll share something. Um, I'll share something that I've learned. I've I've had the privilege now, uh, going on my fifth year, to work with Rabbi Michael Siegel, who's the senior rabbi of my congregation and really one of the leaders of the conservative movement today. Um, and we had a meeting. Um, we had a meeting on Tuesday night with a, a group of congregants and myself and Rabbi Siegel. Uh, that we meet periodically every couple months to talk about the worship services that we offer. We did a major redesign of two of our three high holiday services. Now we're working on Friday night, and we're talking about what do we do with Friday night. So we said, well, you leave in place what we have for Friday night, start to play around the margins, and we came up with three alternative plans. We're going to work them out. And, and he looked at us and he said, what we need to expect now is that one of these is going to fail catastrophically. And I looked at him and I said, yeah, but that's probably the one that's going to teach us the most. And he, and, and, I, and he sort of gave this smile of like, okay, you're clearly learning something here. And he said, yes, right? The one that fails catastrophically is often the, the one that's the best learning opportunity. Uh, so I think, um, you know, if I'm, going to, if I'm going to keep wearing this business school hat, I mean, the, 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 the best thing that any congregation, any organization, any rabbi can do um, is to, not just to get over the fear of failure, but to begin to cultivate an expectation of failure so that we can sit in a meeting and we're going to say, if we're going to have a new style of family Friday night service, if we're going to experiment with an early minion that meets at 5 o'clock, whatever it is that we're going to do, we need to commit now that we're going to do it four times before we decide if it's working or not because the first time is going to have problems and we'll fix them all the second time and then we'll see the new problems. And to, to shift from a fear of what, is it, what if it doesn't work to an expectation of something won't work. We don't know now what's not going to work. Anything that we could see now that won't go well, we've already fixed and we've already dealt with. Um, and I said this to, uh, to Rabbi Knopf on, on, um, yesterday on Shabbat afternoon. The first thing I noticed when I walked in on Friday night is it was clear how well the band had rehearsed. And I don't know if that's something that the rest of you would have picked up on, but literally the first thought that went through my mind when I heard the band was, 
they are very well rehearsed. Right? So that's obviously something you can look at and you can say, if we're going to have a band at the service, what could go wrong? The band could not really know what they're doing. But inevitably, there'll be other things that you don't anticipate that will go wrong. And I think what I've, what I've learned from my senior rabbi is you get a, not only to get over the fear of failure, but to build in the expectation that things won't work and that we'll learn from what doesn't work and we'll try again and we'll try again. And if you can move through three or four or five or 12 cycles of something, now you're working. Oh, you should. Okay. Right, I just, I just had to. I, I really appreciated that um, uh, Rabbi Friedman's comments. I just had uh, two additional thoughts. The first was to pick up on um, my father-in-law's metaphor of the rainbow being a two-way covenant between rabbi and community. Um, that if we're talking about operationalizing, I think is the word that you use, um, the, uh, um, the, uh, the, the spiritual power of, uh, of Judaism, then I think that that two-way street is a really apt metaphor. Um, and I'll add in another metaphor that I know, Gary, you're fond of, and I am too, of, um, uh, so there's a school of thought that uh, I'm very taken with, and Gary is as well, and I hope that uh, over the course of time we'll get to learn more about this, uh, all of us together, um, called Process Theology, which is a, um, a school of philosophy developed by um, a, a, a mathematician turned philosopher named Alfred North Whitehead. And uh, Whitehead uh, says that God doesn't have coercive power, God has persuasive power which means that God meets us in each and every moment with a lure that we can either choose to follow or choose not to follow. If we don't follow it, then in the next moment, we're met again with another divine lure that we can either choose to follow or not follow. And I think that that works in the two-way street between rabbi and community, that, 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 uh, that the, the rabbi no longer, if he or she ever had um, coercive power, we now only... Um, and I think beautifully have persuasive power. So we can hold out those lures um, toward the future that the community can take or not take and continue holding out lures depending on what choices the community can take. But it works the opposite way as well. The community can hold out lures to the rabbi too. So lots of the best ideas that, I, that, that we've operationalized so far at Beth El have not come from me. They've, you know, they've come from... Um, a conversation between me and um, lay leaders and uh, community members like yourselves um, uh, that, uh, that we're, we're both engaged in this dance of, uh, of holding out lures to each other. So that's just one thing. The second thing is um, a, a, a brief story that I told to the board um, the other night at our meeting, and I want to share it with all of you. So the other day, I had lunch with a guy named David Dwight, who is the senior pastor of Hope Church, which is uh, just up the street here. Um, a 2,700 family congregation. And uh, we were talking, I was trying to get some inside baseball, how do you uh, build a church, how do you build a synagogue as successful as hope? Um, and uh, he told me a story that he uh, uses, and I want to share with you because I think it's uh, um, of the same ilk. So they call their members at Hope. It's, uh, it's a, actually a process of becoming a member at Hope. You can, you can come to anything. You can be a part of anything at Hope. But to be a member is actually um, a commitment to the values and principles and future of Hope. And they call their members owners-operators. You're an owner-operator if you're a member of the church. So, and he said, and so I, that was a strange language to me. I never really heard that language. Like, Where'd you get that language? He's like, well, I want to tell you a story. So Walt Disney had this idea for Disneyland and no one had ever heard of or seen anything like it. The closest thing that had ever existed was the county fair or the state fair. So he went to bank after bank after bank to get the financing for Disneyland and everybody turned him down because what are you crazy? Like we've never seen this before. Finally, he finds someone crazy enough to finance Disneyland. And it turns out to be this huge success. And so um, uh, someone who had turned him down comes up to him after Disneyland is successful and he says, tell me, like no one thought that this was going to work. So at what point for you was the moment at which you knew Disneyland was going to be a success? And here's what, here was his answer. He said, the moment that I knew Disneyland was going to be a success was when I walked into the park 
and I saw Cinderella bend down and pick up a cigarette butt. <laughs> right? Because when everybody within the institution believes in the fundamental mission of the institution and is willing to get down and dirty to make sure that the experience of everybody there is conducive to furthering the mission of the institution, becomes an owner-operator of the institution, that's how you know it's successful. So how do you operationalize it? For all of us to become owners-operators. Now I see why my wife thinks that my, our daughter married her father. Because <laughs> um, I was going to say, in a, in a slightly different lingo, that there are two types of status. And sociologists describe two kinds of status. And to the sociologists of them, I apologize if I, don't, if I don't get the depth of it. There's what's called ascribed status and achieved status. I think that, that's the term that's used. Yeah? Uh, and that's a, a problem in a congregation uh, our, uh, in our age and in the liberal framework. Uh, we don't, we, it's hard to, for us to balance ascribed and achieved status. Because, now, um, in our, our son's congregation in B'nai Amuna, uh, our son has instituted a Sephardic custom that when the, the rabbi or rabbis uh, go to the Torah, they all stand up, right? Now that's an example of a scribe status, okay? Uh, but the, the important part of what um, Harav Yeruham uh, has said here is that there is the other part of it, the achieving, and I think that one he, he has right as well. Your problem is how to differentiate between ascribed and achieved status. Uh, and that's often the problem of the congregation. Uh, there's expectation for certain things, um, and the question is, is that expectation uh, re reasonable and real? So he's absolutely right. There is a dance quality to all of this. Uh, but. It, it, you got to work through this issue of the balance between ascribed and achieved status. I'm not sure what I have to answer to, uh, to add to that piece of the conversation. I think that we've been, um, without the language, doing the same, doing thinking of it similarly. Um, I just want to piece of bio biographical which will perhaps show. When I, I grew up in a 125 family congregation in Belleville, New Jersey. That's my, that was my beginning as uh, born in New York, we, didn't, we had nothing. My grandparents were Yiddishists. They were, they were, you know, Yiddish was the word. There was no Judaism. There was, there was no lich bench in my grandparents' homes. There was none of that. I found that in the suburbia of a conservative congregation. But they didn't have a language of owner, operator, whatever, but everybody who joined the shul joined because they needed the shul. They wanted to, it was for them, all right? You didn't join the shul and stay home. Yes, I did. Many people I didn't see that often during the year, but I saw them all during the year because I was the kid in shul. So while the shul was obviously stacked for Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, on the other hand, I did see all of those people somewhere during the course of the rest of the year. And that's always been my challenge, I saw, in terms of the, the pulpit rabbinate, is how to get everybody to have that same feeling. You know, why did anybody join a congregation? All right, maybe the synagogue didn't articulate it enough. We were phenomenologically there. So as I always was growing up, they didn't go to a reformed congregation because it seemed like a church. They wouldn't go to orthodoxy, plague upon the house. So what was left was the conservative synagogue. Goldilocks. That was, that was, the, that was what the way it was. I'll never be, I mean, I had congregations that my parents were orthodox, my grandparents, I'll never be orthodox. Right, I wanted to dissect that whole mindset, but we, nobody wanted to do that. On the other hand, they had a very pejorative feeling towards reform. Right, so what was left was phenomenologically the conservative synagogue. But those who joined at least where I grew up, in a small shul, which was intimate, because they wanted, when somebody says, I don't need the synagogue anymore, I never heard that as a kid. They needed the synagogue for themselves, not as an institution. That's what's the big, been one of the big changes in the world. 
the need for an institution that has been around for 2,000 years and has a liturgy for 1,000 plus, that addresses the issues that Gary began with. How do you, not us, how do you see the mission? Why did you become members in a synagogue, whether it's this or any other? And if you want people to be members in this synagogue, then how are you going to tell anybody why? We don't have to answer why. We know why. We got lots of answers why. But what's yours? That's really the challenge for the synagogue of today. For any institution, they have to articulate. People have to know why they want to be part of it. But if once you say yes, then the, the owner-operator model is a great language for it. It means that you've invested yourselves in the existence because it gives you something. And in the giving to you, you give in. And I think ultimately that's part of the passion. So that is a, a beautiful lead-in to uh, opening, it, opening this up to the floor um, and um, asking anyone here... Al, Al, Al has his hand. He's been waiting for an hour. Al. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, yeah, you know what? This will go. Could you speak louder? You see, my Rebbe used to call me Paskudnik, which was um, not such good. Anyway, the point is that uh, I think all four people have given some incredible global answers to rabbis, rabbinics, uh, synagogues, involvement on a part of the uh, individual, but, you know, as somebody used to say about politics, all politics is global. So as far as I'm concerned, you've articulated that. I want to get down to the local. And the question before the panel is, what's the role of the rabbi? So I don't I understand what you're saying about which of all congregation. But without the rabbi, excuse me, there's no congregation in American life. Because it's the rabbi that um, projects what it is to be a Jew in that congregation. So without the rabbi projecting certain magnetic ideas, the congregation is not there. I mean, the congregation is not the same, Rebbe, as when you grew up in Belleville, New Jersey, and the congregation was there because they needed it. It's exactly the opposite now. Jews don't need this. They don't feel the need for it, in general. Okay, having said that, my simple question, because you can't... You know, that, that, that relates to uh, relates to the topic of what does a rabbi, what's the rabbi's role is. It seems to me that the rabbi's one of the rabbi's major roles is in building community. It's not in exposing or ex, you know speaking about lofty ideals and yada yada yada. I think our MBA, <laughs> our MBA student, was getting close to an answer. When you talked about involving people in discussions, involving the congregation in discussions, that's one way to build community. But I want to hear how you feel in this generation, in these times, what's the role of the rabbi in building community? Well, that's the two of you guys. So, thank you for the question. So, um, I have, you know, the, the topic was you know, the, the role of the rabbi or the evolving role of the rabbi in the 21st century. And of course, there isn't uh, one role, so it's a little bit misleading. Um, so I, I just want to offer two metaphors for, uh, in answer to Hal's question. They come from two very different teachers of mine. Uh, one was actually a teacher of mine. One was a teacher of mine, you know, sort of like in the global sense. So uh, the actual teacher of mine, uh, Rabbi Sean Fieldsmeyer, was a, a teacher of mine in rabbinical school. 
And she said that the, uh, um, that the best metaphor she had for the role of the rabbi is glue. The rabbi is the glue that holds the community together. And I like that metaphor. And so if we, if we talk about, you know, uh, what's the role of the rabbi in building community, um, we're the sticky element that helps bring people and connect people together. So, and the second metaphor, which is from uh, Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz, one of the great luminaries of our generation. Um, I heard him speak in Los Angeles at Valley Beth Shalom, and Rabbi Ed Feinstein um, interviewed him and said, what's the role of uh, the Jewish people in the world? And Rabbi Steinsaltz said, the Jews are the yeast in the dough of humanity. And so I want to suggest that that's maybe an apt metaphor for the role of the rabbi in, in a community as well. We're, we're the yeast in the dough of the community. We help with, from within the context of the community, lift the community um, and expand the community into something uh, um, a, a, more, a more beautiful, a lighter, more flavorful version of itself. So it's taking the, the, the uh, latent ingredients in the community and helping them to rise and to become something more glorious uh, than, they, than they were at the beginning, but still retaining their uh, fundamental essence. Uh, two quick things. Uh, I learned from my uh, second son, who was the rabbi in B'nai Amuna, often how to outreach to people. Uh, the story goes like this. When he was his previous congregation, um, the minion was at 9, and the study group was at 10. At 10 o'clock, a lady and her daughter walk in. They're going to say Kaddish. They realize they've come an hour late, and they're, they're turning their heels, and they're going out the door. My son, Rabbi Carney Rose, goes to the minion, says hello, and they explain that they've made a mistake and they're terribly sorry. And he says, please come in, uh, and uh, we have a minion here. And so the study group stopped, and they allowed the woman and her daughter to say Kaddish. Uh, I, I think that this, is, this business of outreach is extremely, extremely important. Um, and meeting people collectively and individually. I think in many ways, the, the Protestants use the term for their leader as parson, which is an old English for person. The rabbi is the person, the, the exemplar of what it is to be a Jew. And therefore, the rabbi as the parson, the, the Jew, the model of, you know, the is got to be a person who reaches community is built in two levels. Stuff like we're doing now and one by one reaching people in ways that sometimes you don't realize as in uh, my son Carney's experience. Um, so I want to suggest that there are these two levels to this. Uh, the, o the only other thing I would add to that is, um, is thinking about what, what are the assets that your community possesses that are in short supply in the rest of the world. And, and in this respect, the, the changes that are happening in the synagogue and the changes that are happening uh, in the role of the rabbi are a, they're a specific application of changes that are happening in the world generally. And so uh, Seth Godin, who thinks a lot about technology and the way in which it's shaping and transforming society, talks about the connection economy. We're leaving an industrial time, and we're moving into an economy that's based on human connection. And what a, what a house of worship, this isn't just about synagogues, but we, we here care about synagogues, what a synagogue can provide people with that is in short supply in the rest of life in America. The tragic irony is we have all this technology, there are so many people, and we don't have a way to connect to one another. You know, and I remember um, 
you know, I remember as a boy growing up in midtown Atlanta, block parties. My parents knew all the families in the neighborhood, and we would walk down the street and we would wave to people on the porches and the, you know, the elderly widows and the young families and the gay men. I mean, it's like every, we knew people by name, everyone by name in the neighborhood. Um, and, and I'm blessed to live now in a neighborhood where that's also the case, where I can't, I mean, this is a problem when my wife and I try to go out to dinner on a date, but in general in life, it's a nice thing that I walk down the street, I see people everywhere that I know, but that's not an experience that most Americans have, and it's an experience that a synagogue can provide people with, and our, our teacher, Ron Wolfson, has written beautifully about, about the shift from, it's not a shift away from anything that we've emphasized in previous generations, but it's a, a realignment of how do we present it and how do we put the human relationship first, right? And so the first question I have when I meet somebody who's, who's new, who's exploring the synagogue, a prospective member, is not what class can I get you to take or what service are you going to go to? Who are you going to sit with at lunch? Who can I introduce you to who is you know, also a stay-at-home dad, who is also a retired couple who sold their house in the suburbs and moved into the city, who's also a graduate student. How do I find someone that's going to be your point of connection, that's going to be your point of anchoring? And if I can make two or three or four friendships for this person early on, that's a person who's going to stay, and that's a person who's going to come back. This is the flip side of that is... People are dying to be asked to give. We have um, there's a woman in this congregation who for several years has organized a roster of um, cooks who cook for um, moms of new babies, who cook for people who have some kind of a long-term illness, um, who, cook, uh, who cook meals now when people have a shiva, right? So we have people in the congregation who are cooking for other people. And I said to her, you know, I'd like you to look back and see who had a baby two years ago and got meals from us Call them, ask them if they're interested in cooking for other people. And she said, you know, Rabbi, I'm really uncomfortable with that because I don't want it ever to seem like there's a quid pro quo. Like, we gave you this meal because we're going to come back and ask you for a favor later. Um, and I said to her, and I'm, and I'm sharing this with you because she came back and told me later that I was right. As people are dying to be helpful. People want a chance to give something back to somebody else. And you're not imposing on them, and you're not asking them now to pay you back. You're offering them an opportunity to give to someone else a gift that they received. And people, are, people want that. People want that opportunity. They want to be asked. They want to be invited to serve. Because that's what, that's what we don't get in the rest of our lives in society. We don't have an opportunity to serve others. And I think if I think about what, how, do we, how do we actualize this, how do we turn this into, a, how do we build strength in the community? We build it by asking people to serve others. So I'm mindful of the clock. I'm also mindful of the fact that as emeritus, I can say things that I wouldn't have said before. I, <laughs> <laughs> it's like I got three tickets. <laughs> I'm going to say it this way. When I sat at rabbinic conventions and when after all everything else was done and we all sat together, one of the things that always kept reflecting was the phrase, the monkey on the back. Mm. That the rabbi felt, not because anybody said it to us or we had it in any class that way, but we self-visioned ourselves that whatever was the ill of the congregation or the need of the congregation, the monkey was on our back to solve that. Now that's exactly the language of your question. How do we build community? We don't. You do. And I'm going to give you an example. Because I saw it from elsewhere. I saw it from when we have our interfaith Thanksgiving services. Who are the people that stand at the door in the church? They are called stewards. And you do not go to any church without the representatives of the church standing at the door to greet you when you come in. And I came to our board with that model. I said, I'm on the pulpit. When I'm off, I go around, I say hello, I meet people I don't know, I ask all this and that. But after services begin, and besides me, we need to have board members at the door. Now, originally, for those who remember that for this far back, 
when we had Barabat mitzvahs, the family had to give us people at the door to hand out the brochures. But those people couldn't even tell anybody where the bathrooms were. <laughs> they would ask questions and they didn't know, they had no idea how to answer. You know, some people did, obviously. But many of the people that the families put there for the doors, we used to ask this question when I first came, this is part of the Barabat mitzvah setup, they gave us people who had not the foggiest notion of anything in the shul, so they could not be helpful more than giving them the shtickle piece of paper. And I came to the board with this explanation of what I saw at the churches and how effective it was to the question of community. Because members of community were greeting potential or peers of community, one-to-one. -one. Forget all the verbiage. That's how you build community. There is no one at the door Usually, I, I appreciate Franklin Great. and a few other people who stand there who, who greet people, say good Shabbos, good Yontif. Maybe they don't even give them a piece of paper, but they greet them. They say, welcome here, which is more effective than what we can say up front or you can print on the brochure. When you see, when you adopt in your own hearts that you are operators, owners, participants, beyond the word member. And the reason for the existence of the synagogue is dear to you. And you will stand up to bring people in. You will build community. We have our roles for sure. But whatever we do is never going to be effective if the people who are the stakeholders in the existence do not realize that or accept that as their place. Then we'll build community. I'm thanking my panel over and over again as much as we possibly can. I think we had a moment of reflection on critical issues. And now it's time to go out and make connections. It's all about leveraging relationships. That's what Judaism does. Um, and so um, with that, um, we'll call this to the line.